Hello, and welcome to the April 25th, 2023 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is blues harp master Martin Lang. Martin Lang is based in Chicago performing at clubs and festivals, including Chicago Blues Fest. And he records for Random Chance Records out of New York with three albums, Bad Man, Ain't No Notion, and Chicago Blues Harp Sessions to date. Lang is a leading player in the post-war amplified blues style honed over 25 years behind the legendary Chicago bluesman, Taildragger. Also a veteran session player with Chicago's Delmark Records, Martin Lang has toured Europe and the United States alongside blues legends such as Pinetop Perkins, Robert Jr. Lockwood, Sam Lay, Willie Smith, and Dave Myers. Lang's playing has appeared on records with John Brim Sr., Little Arthur, and many more. He has performed at the King Biscuit Blues Festival, Mississippi Saxophone Festival, and more. Martin arrived in Chicago as a teenager, enamored with blues, into the Chicago blues scene in the 1990s, gleaning the knowledge that can only be hard won from original players over the next decades. Today, his playing is a great example of Chicago blues harp. His band, the Bad Man Blues Band, is anchored by drummer Dean Haas, who supplied the groove for Jimmy Rogers for 35 years for most of Rogers' Chicago gigs. Haas is also featured on Lang's three albums. The other half of the rhythm section is bassist Illinois Slim, who's also a harp and guitar player in the style of Chicago's Eddie Taylor. 
Slim adds a feel for real old-time blues, including slow blues, that is unmatched, says Lang. Guitarists include Grammy winners Billy Flynn and Little Frank. Billy Flynn has been a mainstay on the Chicago blues circuit since the mid-1980s and has released his own albums on Delmark Records and other labels. He has worked with blues greats like Jimmy Dawkins, Little Arthur Duncan, Billy Boy Arnold, and many, many more. Little Frank Krakowski started playing blues when he was a young teenager and has performed with nationally touring artists in the traditional blues vein, including Paul Oscar, Kim Wilson, and more. These esteemed bluesmen have performed at many Chicago venues as well as worldwide, committing their lives to bringing Chicago blues to audiences. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Martin Lang. Hello, Martin. Hey, man. It's really great to uh, talk with you and to have you as a guest on my podcast today. Thanks, Craig. Great to be here. Well, many, if not most of my listeners, will know that Chicago is home of the electric style called Chicago Blues. And Uh, uh, many of us are going to be familiar with uh, Chicago icons such as Chess Records and Alligator Records and Delmark Records and Muddy Waters and Little Walter, Buddy Guy, and and others. What many of us may not be uh, familiar because we don't live in Chicago land is the more recent blues scene in Chicago. Would yeah. you uh, would you bring us up to speed? And uh, is the blues still alive and well in Chicago and the Midwest? Well, it, it's 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 yeah, but it's different. It depends on on. Um, uh, I guess it depends on what you are uh, ready to um, ready to accept as something that you know you want to call blues. Uh, the the categories, as far as that goes, have gotten broader, but. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm somebody, I just old enough to have been, uh, to have seen the very, very tail end of, uh, the blues scene in Chicago when it was still, uh, being played in, uh, you know, black clubs on the West side, mostly, uh, with tail dragger by mm-hmm. and large, although I started before I met tail dragger, uh, with mm-hmm. another band, uh, called the midnight ramblers. Um, that was Kansas city reds old band and he had just died. Illinois Slim, who plays on my records, also used to play with Kansas City Red with those guys. And uh, in those days, you you know there there was a scene on the West Side where there was the audience was was a hundred was all you know neighborhood people, black people from wherever on the West Side, Madison Street, Pulaski Avenue, you know, all the way over and to to Holman and you know all over the place. Uh, the Delta fish market and all that kind of stuff. All the, all that stuff is gone. Even places that were more touristy in the black neighborhoods, like the checkerboard are also gone. Uh, even now post COVID, a lot of like institutional old North side white clubs are gone. Mm. Uh, like blues on Halston, which is a venerable club. Um, I mean, you know, really going back as early as the 70s you know i mean it was i mean the early 70s you know it was like uh 
uh, one of the first big white clubs. All the black guys I knew knew about it and played there, you know. Mm-hmm. Also, all the white guys that I knew. I mean, it was like, a you know, uh, a whole bunch of cl- clubs closed over COVID, um, as I'm sure is the case in, in where you're at in Madison. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, one of my favorite clubs, the, the Knuckle Down up there, closed um, secondary to COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so that has affected um the 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 scene the the question is it alive is it being played yeah it's being played um in different forms um the audience has become more uh diverse i think Mm -hmm. there's a there's um it's blues is while some you know people traditionalists which i think i would call myself but not one that would say this uh would say it's sort of watered down um it's just it's spreading out and looking for another interpreter i think mm-hmm. at this point uh someone that uh i mean it, there's nothing the, uh, to me uh i don't know if you've ever heard of this there was a, a great f- photographer in chicago named ray flerlich who uh took all these kind of iconic photographs of people like muddy waters and little walter you know back in the day mm-hmm. um was also personal friends with a lot of the musicians and uh, and lived on the south side mm-hmm. uh um you know uh, you know in the middle of it he ray flerlich said uh that when when a when a blues singer and i think kester bob kester from delmark records may have echoed the sentiment he said when a blues singer is singing in front of a black audience he's telling the crowd their own story mm-hmm He's he's telling the blues is their story. Mm-hmm. When a when a blues guy like Taildragger is over in Europe singing to a white audience in Holland or France or or a white audience here in you know mm-hmm. I don't know Portland the Portland Blues Festival you know he's not telling them their story he's telling them his story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's a, a really I, I you know when I read that that Ray Floyd said that I thought wow that makes a lot of sense you know because there was a, there was a real. There was, there's a completely different when when tail dragger who you know uh i'm sure most of li- your listeners know is a really old blues guy in chicago now um i met him 25 years ago um but uh when when we when tail dragger went to jail um and we w- went from playing at the 5105 club which was a black club on the west side mm-hmm. 5105 west north avenue a few blocks east uh, on Division Street to a white hipster club. The difference, we had never played, the band that I was playing in at that time, which was Johnny's band, um, we had never, we hadn't really played that much for, like, sustained for white audiences. We couldn't believe how easy it was. Mm-hmm. Because at a black club, the audience is part of the, I mean, they're part of the, the call and response. Mm-hmm. So you have call and response going on within the music, and then you also have it going on within the club between the bandstand and the crowd. Mm-hmm. Like a black audience wants to participate. They come to the club wanting to be part of what's going on on the bandstand. You know, mm-hmm. this is a radical difference from a white audience who, you know, they f- sort of feel like their job is to, is to kind of, you know, tell you how great you are all the time. You know, it's like falling off mm-hmm. a lot, man. <laughs> right, right. Well, I mean, it's, it's maybe it has you know, uh, certain uh, racial and cultural implications too, that sure. that a white audience is really more in, some, in many ways, uh, musical tourists. 
right will, right uh, maybe, yeah. maybe obser- observing uh yeah. you know because you know i think uh you know like you say uh blues is a is a music that talks about personal experience um and not unlike you know we we always like to say this thing about country music which is predominantly white Mm -hmm. uh, oriented it tells a story Mm -hmm. it's a it's sometimes a personal experience story but a lot of times it's just a you know a general observational story whereas i think the blues you know when i woke up this morning uh-huh. You know, or, you know, it's the kind of thing very much on a on a on a personal level. Yeah. And I, th- and I think that crowd interaction is sort of uh, relational. Yeah, I mean, they were the crowds were, <clears throat> you know, they the crowds knew what they were looking for when they walked through the door of a blues club uh, on Saturday night. And mm-hmm. they, they knew they weren't going to church and they, they wanted right. to hear a. You know, they want to hear the story told from a certain vantage point, from a right. certain perspective. Like Sonny Boy Williams and uh, the Rice Miller, not the real Sonny Boy, but Rice Miller had that tune uh, about the, the preacher, you know, the the, the goat, you know, mm-hmm. getting out of town, you know. And all mm-hmm, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It gets, it's like this, he butts so hard, you know, <laughs> you know, it's it's like the guy kept doing, he keeps doing all this bad stuff and getting away with it. He's like the, this Joker sort of character. That's a blues storytelling perspective you know and right. uh and uh you know the aggrieved man you know uh who, with a bad woman you know i mean mm-hmm. tail dragger tail dragger you know said and and he said this to me in different contexts but he he said at his trial that the blues tells a story mm-hmm. you know it's a blues story and it's told in a certain way it's a blues story told in a blues way you know, mm-hmm. and that's like what the people in a, in a black audience were coming looking for at the Delta Fish Market on Saturday night. They were, mm-hmm. you know, they wanted to, they, they really wanted to, to, to let loose, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, I thought, man, these people are really having fun. This is the best, this, the, this looks like the most fun I've ever seen anybody having, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so I've, it, it instantly captivated. Well, I remember years and years ago, uh, when I taught uh, jazz history at the university, of course, uh, the blues, a very important root of jazz. And so I would teach a a segment about blues and I would uh, share with my students a documentary that had been done. Oh, it's probably been 25, 30 years ago, maybe more now It's called the land where blues began. And it was kind of more of a focus on, on Mississippi Delta blues. But one of the statements I always remember that came across from one of the the blues men that was interviewed was that, well, when you've got the blues, in other words, when you're feeling sad, when you're feeling down and out, or when you're feeling like you've been done wrong, you know, one way to overcome that or to, he didn't use this term, but that, you know, to experience a catharsis or a cleansing of those feelings was to sing the blues and yeah. sing about that experience. It was a way of yeah. getting personal uh, uh, emotions kind of off your chest yeah. and, and doing it in, um, you know, sort of a, maybe a boastful way uh, as uh-huh. a way of being an antidote for your own, uh, you know, negative feelings at the time. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a great deal going on. You know, um, when you see it, I mean, it's kind of a magic, magical thing that 
you know, it was for a certain generation of black um, people from a certain part of the world, you know, the South, um, it was, it's hard to, it, it's like kind of like an inside thing, like, uh, like, a, like, you know, the if you knew what blues was all about, you know, what it was about, and, and you, you know, <laughs> that was it, you know, it was mm -hmm. like, that's why they called it the devil's music. It wasn't so much, I mean, there wasn't so much, the, the people who called it, Tailbagger says that, that, that that's what the old folks called it, right? Tailbagger was now 84. Mm -hmm. So the old folks used to call it the devil's music. But it yep. isn't really, I mean, it's like the devil's music, yeah, but it's more like the music of this world, you know, mm -hmm. as opposed to, I always say, like, you know, if you're, if you got answers, if you're looking for answers, what's for you is praise music, gospel, man. Yeah, because blues is all blues has got is a question. Yeah, well, I always like the uh, the comparison that the blues is about Saturday night and gospel's about <laughs> Sunday morning. Yeah. Right, right, right. You know, but they're two sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah, they use you the know? same changes, a lot of the same harmonies. That a lot, yeah, of, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I went, uh, I went to see uh, um, the Norfleet Brothers and the Mighty Clouds of Joy at a big mm -hmm. church on the South Side one time with a couple of musician friends and man I, it was insane i'm gonna tell you like at the end of one of those numbers they did like wade in the water or something like that one of those heavy old mm -hmm. gospel tunes and i was still wearing this green this shiny green shark skin suit that i had worn to the gig the night before mm -hmm. because the phone had woke me up it was one of my partners calling me saying hey man we got to go to this find out at the last minute about this gospel show at this baptist church on the south side mm -hmm. so we went and uh at the end of one of those numbers those those tunes i think it was the mighty clouds of joy were singing i just found myself standing up and, and like hollering and clapping as hard as i could and that suit was like soaking wet man i mean mm -hmm. that music is when they when those people really lay into it look out yeah <laughs> I mean, they're as heavy as you want well i mean it's very much about you know raising the spirits that's for sure yeah. You know, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's why it's great music. I mean, I love, yeah. I love gospel music and as much as I like, uh, blues and jazz and, and, oh, yeah. I mean, those yeah. kinds of things, they get under your skin and you, and get a hold of you and you just can't let go. And it's, uh, it's a music that's, that's really great. Well, I want to ask you something else that may tie into something that you were talking about earlier about how the blues, has changed and what i'm curious from your perspective is the blues truly an international style now or is it still just a regional style that is imitated internationally now i'm thinking primarily of all the various pockets of blues styles within the United States, because we've uh -huh. got, you know, you've got Delta blues, you've got East Texas blues, you've right. got Piedmont blues, you've right. got uh, Chicago Louisiana. blues, yeah. you've got Memphis blues, you've yeah. got Louisiana swamp blues, uh -huh. you've got, you know, all those different labels, which yeah. might be meaningless. Uh -huh. Although there are some stylistic identifiers, I think, uh, with with certain styles, you know, just because of the way certain people played. But aside from that, yeah. there's also you know, the cotton fields of the Thames River in England. Yeah. Uh, and all of those and all of those English blues musicians, I'm thinking like John Mile and right. uh, 
and of course blues influenced uh, uh, bands like the Rolling Stones and the yeah. Animals and right and that sort of thing. So, so what do you what's your take uh, on uh, well on, on the blues as a musical style? There is if as far as as far as Mike being a regional style, um, you know, probably between like I don't know 1935 and 19 maybe 55 or 60 uh i would say 1963 or 64 uh right up to the civil rights act um it was uh a regional style mm -hmm. i don't think that a lot of musicians back in those days who were touring and playing on the chitlin circuit and doing gigs in their hometowns st louis or you know memphis or jackson tennessee or new orleans or wherever they were playing and and, and going out on the road touring behind guys like everybody from like Otis Rush to, you know, Little Walter to Muddy Waters to, uh, you know, Sam Cooke and Aretha Franklin. I mean, there was a little bit of a spillover in, in guys here and there. Uh, and uh, I don't think those guys talked in terms of categories of music. Mm -hmm. Like, sure. uh, you know, they, they it was all music to them. You know, mm -hmm. um, the categories came later from, I think, I think it all started with the separation of the pre and post-war by record collectors, you know. And then after that, mm -hmm. you know, record companies and stuff were getting, they saw that it paid to know uh, who was listening to what early mm -hmm. on, you know. And, right. uh, you know, they say that uh, Leonard Chess had a very simple, like, homespun way of, he would take his car and fill up the trunk with singles and just go from juke joint to juke joint, drop them off at jukeboxes, and then turn around when he got to the bottom of Texas, the panhandle, turn around uh, and come back and check which ones have been played the most. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so uh, in those days, it was regional. Is there a current scene in places like Clarksdale in Memphis? Yes. Mm -hmm. It has very, very, very little resemblance to um, what it came from i don't know if the idea is mm -hmm. to imitate what used to be there because i actually saw what used to be there i, I went down there mm -hmm. in uh uh 1992 or three or something like that uh me and my girlfriend drove down there and it was before clarksdale and all that stuff had turned into kind of a blues hippie tourist thing you know mm -hmm. which kind of yep. is now i mean i'm not trying to talk bad about it it's just no I, in comparison to what it used to be sure uh it was really really it was i was down there trying to find some music to listen to and went into a, a black club with some friends of mine man i'll tell you never in my life was i as did i do we get that hostile reception you know in in anywhere except that way down there man you mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. uh but nowadays, that's completely all over with. That's so. I don't want to say that there isn't a regional thing going on down there, but th there is. But it's, um, it. I don't know. I mean, I hope nobody gets too mad at me for saying that it, it seems to owe more to Jimi Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan than it does to uh, John Hurt and you know Sam Chapman. <laughs> well, I think certainly, sir, uh, you know, there there have been artists who have, you know, kind of maybe i don't know if the word i don't want to say crossover 
uh, yeah. you know, more to the popular side, but certainly they've had a little broader appeal, like Stevie Ray yeah. Vaughan, sure, you know, sure. for example, uh, or yeah, uh, or... I mean, a guy like Stevie Ray Vaughan has an inherent advantage in his business um, over a whole lot of his competitors. I mean, if if you want to say that his some of his competitors were black guys, yeah, I don't know, guys like maybe, um, uh, I don't know, Robert Cray or somebody like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Stevie Ray does unmistakably enjoy a distinct advantage because he's white. There's no yep. doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, I mean, a, a black guitar player and singer is automatically going to be pigeonholed into a certain demographic by the record mm-hmm. companies. Right. Is that racism or is it business or is the line between those things blurry? Who knows? Yes, it is. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's, um, it's, it, it's really hard hard to make sure to judge, but it's like yeah. I mean, you could even go back to uh, uh, I, I don't know if you've seen the new movie about Elvis Presley. Oh, I haven't. No, it's uh, well, it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best oh, Picture. Really? It didn't win. But I did see it. I thought it was an excellent. Uh, it's a different uh, sort yeah. of. Yeah, you have to check it out. It's it's a very it's a different kind of biopic, uh-huh. uh, in that it's really told more through the eyes of Colonel Tom Parker. But uh-huh. uh, but nonetheless, it really shows how uh, Elvis uh, interacted with. Uh, gospel musicians black oh, yeah. gospel and was yeah. was hitting the clubs uh in yeah. the black part of memphis on beale street yeah. and hanging and and performing and and so forth uh you know and and uh you know and, a, and i also remember a time when you know i think i remember a quote by sam phillips if i could find a white man who could sound yeah. like a black man i'd make millions of dollars yeah and yeah. uh that was sort of you know the the whole thing with uh, yeah it's i think it's unfortunate um that uh see like my relationship with 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 with, with, with tail dragger didn't start out like particularly well I mean, mm-hmm. um, if if getting like 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 chewed out, I mean, cored like an apple over the PA at a gig for the crowd mm-hmm. um, was something that would would you know cause a guy to quit a band. I would have quit Tail Draggers Band a whole bunch of times when mm-hmm. I was first starting out. I mean, I took it on the chin from that guy. Sure, you know? but I really wanted to do this and. Uh, at some point along the way, he stopped doing that. Mm-hmm. And somewhere around that point, the whole issue of race became like, um, and I mean, it's quite literally a joke between me and Dragger. We joke about it. Mm-hmm. Um, we tell each other jokes about, I'll tell him jokes about black people and he'll tell me jokes about white people. And mm-hmm. we can genuinely laugh about them because at some point along the way, I think he made his peace with the, or he, he, he came to feel that I really understood this blues thing that was so important. And somehow by, by, uh, by him coming to that belief, uh, the, we managed to completely overcome the race issue as well as the, I would add that it's the socioeconomic issue and education and age mm-hmm, i mean mm-hmm. it's a really really powerful thing that 
this kind of like art form could achieve that mm-hmm. for these these two guys. I mean, I'm as white a dude as they come, man. I'm from Connecticut, right? I right. Mean, <laughs> and tail draggers from arkansas and he's practically as old as my dad was you mm-hmm, know mm-hmm. and uh but we don't have that kind of we have a very very close relationship i mean mm-hmm. uh, you know um, but he's not like my dad or my big brother or my friend or or my or my uncle or anything it's kind of a unique thing you know right 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 and, and it's really the creation of our both our shared love for this kind of music mm-hmm. and it's somewhere somehow along the way uh he managed to uh he managed to to uh you know i don't know it's a combination of teaching and learning you know and right. uh and he did he 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 really was very diligent in sticking to the to uh sticking to his guns when he was teaching me something and he taught me mm-hmm. a lot of important things so it really kind of it pains me when i see people turning blues that's not my intention people when i see turning people turning blues into um something that's divisibly all about race you know what i mean as opposed mm-hmm. to um it, it 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 and that's generally over funds over money you know like yeah, who's yeah who's getting the the financial rewards of of doing this and that's legitimate not to say that isn't legitimate but uh you know i i mean i i can't i've never i mean i there's no way i could have uh you know, I mean, I tried to do a couple other things, man. I tried to go to law school and stuff that just, and the music kept always winning out, you know, yeah. I, I just never, um, I, I never felt when I first heard this stuff, I never felt like there was any question about what I was going to do with my life. Right. I was either going to do this or I was going to die a drunk in the gutter. That's it. <laughs> Turns out you do both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, that was, I mean, it was, it spoke so clearly and it said everything. I heard everything there was in the music uh there was everything about life there was was in this i heard it in this sound Mm -hmm. and i had no doubt about it ever i mean from when i first because i when i first showed up in chicago i didn't know that little walter had his own band and his own recordings i thought he was just muddy's hard player Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i went to maxwell street with my new girlfriend and i got a cassette tape the best of little walter and i put took it home to my dorm room at the university of chicago and put it in the the, the the little ghetto blaster stereo and i press play and i think the first tune was 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 my babe uh-huh. and it just uh i told kim field that it, it was like it was like somebody fired a 12 gauge shotgun at the crystal chandelier in my brain mm-hmm. it like it, it completely like i had never heard anything that good before and i had mm-hmm. never heard anything that was so complete and said it all at that yeah. well yeah, I mean, yeah. there was no doubt. I had no doubt in my mind that, that I was going to do that or nothing else. Yeah, and I, there's a story I have connected to that, which is um, shortly after that, I ran into uh, um, this guy named David Waldman, who who um, was a little bit older than me and had been around a while, very accomplished musician, harmonica player. He heard me play. He also was at the University of Chicago. He heard me play. And at a party, and then the following morning, I'm going into the library with my books. I'm, I'm getting ready to study for this test or some shit. And here comes Dave, and he and he, he stops me and he explains. He says, "Hey, Martin, I'm going to show you." He plays the same link, the same lick, identical licks, with two different using two different embouchures. 
And the tone on the second, the tone using the embouchure that I did not, I'd never heard of before, uh, radically different than what I was doing. Uh, I, 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 he said, he got done. He said, can you hear the difference? And I said, I sure can. I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm putting my tongue against the heart. So right there, I just turned around and walked right back to my dorm and put my books down. <laughs> and I just started doing, I was like, I'm going to figure out how to do that. No matter if it comes hell or high water, I'm going to figure out how to do that. Uh, it takes a long time. Yeah. And yeah. you really, you got to like completely recalibrate your whole approach uh, in order to do that. The difference between these two embouchures is dramatic and, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it makes a dramatic difference in your tone. And among, among other things, uh, your tack is much more muscular and, powerful and you know it just gives you a, a tremendously uh, greater control over the instrument over the sound mm -hmm. uh and uh seats it deeper in your mouth and uh you really get a you can really take a bite out of it that way as opposed to the sort of easier and faster but let let more obvious way that i was doing it mm -hmm. uh, so i you know i just I, I you know i mean since i've been playing harp around and have students of my own i've had the experience of the same laying the same information on other guys sure and you wouldn't you know you'd be surprised the number of people that say okay that's fine but i'm not prepared to completely re you know re reassess my entire approach and change my whole embouchure in order right to do that there's a lot of people that are not prepared to do that but at 18 or 19 years old i was prepared to do that i'm really glad i was i'm really glad i was well it's, it's, it sounds like you had a real uh reawakening and reordered your priorities oh yeah 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 <laughs> i've done that a couple of times you know yeah. uh i was in law school in new orleans and really hating it and uh i was walking down st charles avenue at like three o'clock in the morning you know because the law library had closed it must mm -hmm. have been sunday morning and uh, here comes this car pulls over and it's like my contracts professor. And he's like coming home from a gig. He's got all these drums and shit in the back of his car. <laughs> he's coming home from a gig and he's listening to uh, the, the uh, blues and R&B radio station down there. WVO, whatever it is. W uh -huh. And, uh, and uh, the guy who, the guy who's got, he's got a blues show and he's listening to it. And the guy plays this recording that I'd made like four or five years earlier. Uh-huh. Uh, with Dave Myers, which had kind of like this little cult audience, you know, uh -huh, and I pointed uh -huh. pointed to the radio and I said to my professor, I said, that's me. I made that like five or six years. <laughs> and he goes, that's you. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I don't know what you're doing in law school. Yeah. And that that I couldn't get that out of my head. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's so, that's what that's what kind of sent you on your way from that, I guess. Yeah. 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 Well, so it's always interesting how we have we have that, that kind of awakening uh, yeah. that that music has gotten into us so much that we just yeah. can't give it up. I, I mean, I, I, you know, I think my experience was the same. It was very similar, uh, albeit different in that I, you know, when I got done with uh, my undergraduate uh, degree and I thought, I don't know if music's the way I want to go. And I just finished a bachelor's degree in music. Wow. And so I was spending, I took a year basically to reassess which direction I was going to go next. But I will tell you this, within three months of having, I got the monkey on my back to get back to playing. Yeah. 
because <laughs> I, I missed it so much. I missed yeah. making music. And yeah. uh, so it didn't take long for me to, to kind of get that wake up call that maybe oh, that's yeah. what I was intended to do. And it's I haven't a, looked back since. It's a physical experience, you know, it's, oh, a, yeah. it's, a, it's, a, it's especially playing art. Um, I play guitar too. Uh-huh. Uh, and it takes so much less effort <laughs> to play guitar um, than it does to blow the harp. At least for me, I'll you know I'll sweat it. I'll sweat through a suit, man, on a gig. You know, sure, it'll knock sure. me out. Yeah, a studio session or something like that. I'm sweating like 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 core silver. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, the 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 uh, the, uh, the um uh. The, the, the participation, the feeling of being in it, the, 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 the physical feeling of, 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 you know, playing while it's happening around you is, you know, that's what you can't ever get. I just don't, can't ever see, not want to do that, you know, yep. and, you know, you do that enough, one thing leads to another. <laughs> you know the next thing you know you're a full-time musician you know? you know that's the thing i i i hear you i mean i i kind of went a different direction in my career in that i you know i chose to be an educator because i right. found that i loved teaching music uh as much as i uh, loved playing music and helping other people oh yeah learn about music and enjoy different music. skills <laughs> yeah so i you know so i spent uh, my career as an educator well i've been you know, uh, mostly retired for uh, about six years now. But since I retired from full-time teaching, I'm doing more playing. Mm. And uh, I just uh, I just uh, had a gig for Saturday night uh, and uh, with my uh, eight piece. And, oh, wow. you know, it's just it, it I, I, you know, it's hard to describe the feeling you get. I mean, I can't find the right words. It's just that I guess the closest I can come to is it's a high that you, I, I just can't really describe what it is. Yeah. And yeah. I know, uh, I know, I know for me, it's like, I'll get home. Like I got home, you know, I don't know, I guess the gig was over about 10, 15, 10, 30, somewhere in there. And I got home probably around midnight and I was still wired and couldn't, yeah go to sleep for quite a while and yes oh. so yesterday was was a total loss <laughs> yeah. oh man i was yeah. laid out yesterday all r&r all day but oh, yeah. but it, i'll do it again in a heartbeat because there's something yeah. about that being in front of an audience yeah and and giving them all you got that is just yeah. such extreme high so and, I, and I i relate to what you're talking about doing a good, good you know having a gig that you played well and everybody at the band's happy and you know mm. you pay them some decent money you know um that's you know it's it used to be bad now it's like at a point where i never thought it would be here at least here uh well as far i mean i've heard stories about madison too that you know the gigs just aren't paying like what they used to pay and you know it's harder to get a whole band together you know yeah. four even five pieces let alone eight you know i mean yeah yeah uh, that's know. I, to be honest with you, and, and I, you know, is that I, I supplement what I pay my guys. Oh, yeah. Well, you kind of have to do that. Don't you? Because, because really now, you know, since I'm, I'm retired, you know, and I love playing, I'm not doing, I'm not playing to make a living. I'm playing right, right. because I love playing. Right. And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm spending my, uh, you know, 
the inheritance that would come to those who come after me <laughs> so that i'm spending yeah. it on paying side men so that they'll That's, show up and play yeah that happens more frequently than i think people realize yeah yeah well and you know we did we you know it's like you know, the gig we had saturday night that we got paid we were the guaranteed money was enough for me to pay my side men i played for free and mm -hmm. I got, and I got, uh, I don't know, like about 30 bucks in tips. So I didn't go completely broke. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> but yeah. we had, we had a great time, had a great time. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it was worth it. Well, well, anyway, well, Martin, you've mentioned little Walter, who else have been models for your, uh, your musical style, both in singing and, and, and your, and harp playing. I'm well, primarily interested in your harp playing. Yeah. Okay. My yeah. As a singer, I don't really have a particular role model. I mean, there's guys I like. I really like John Lee Williamson, Sunny Boy Number One. Mm -hmm. uh, but I like a lot of different singers. Okay. Uh, harp. Um. Obviously, you know, Lil Walter is is the biggest guy. Um. Apart from Walter, there's Leon Brooks, who some people say was had at least as heavy a sound as Little Walter. Um, he was kind of like a, um, he, he came before, uh, kind of like, he was like the last full-time black harp player in Tail Draggers Band. Mm -hmm. uh, after Leon, I think Dave took over and, uh, and I came after Dave and, uh, um, so Leon for sure, for his tone and just his general sound. I mean, that guy was a monster, mm -hmm. uh, and uh uh i, I like uh, i i really like the, the way slim willis plays he's got like a he does not he's not mr tone but i like his phrasing um uh you know i also i i, I love uh john lee williamson um but uh um i i mean i also listen to a lot of different uh horn players and stuff and um you know guys like uh Gene Ammons and Sonny Stead and you know mm -hmm, mm -hmm, the trumpet mm -hmm. players. I like Tricky Sam Manton. Oh yeah, uh, I'm a huge Louis Armstrong fan. I was kind of I was listening to Louis Armstrong as early as I was listening to anything because I had a neighbor, Oscar Peterson, mm -hmm. um, all that stuff. Um, you know, I like uh, almost. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I'm a huge Eddie Harris fan, man. You oh, know, I'm sure. Mean, a lot of those, I, you know, I think Eddie Harris was a certain kind of genius. Um, but the, 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 I'm at this point now, uh, what I spend most of my time thinking about is how can I make, how can I put together a, an honest tune that's also uh, a, a good story and tell it well uh, and, you know, make it groovy. And then I, to tell you the truth, I didn't even, this last record that I just, that me and Rusty made uh, with Dick Sherman, I didn't even really think about the hard parts at all until uh -huh. I was ready to cut them. I uh -huh. just thought about the, the melody of the tune and what lyrics I was going to sing and, and all that. Because I was, uh -huh. I'll tell you right now, I was extremely intimidated by singing next to Rusty. That sure. guy can sing like an angel. And everybody uh -huh. knows it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, you know, he's arguably, I don't know, arguably, maybe he's, he, he may be the best white singer there is on the scene right now. And he, he, seems, he seems to be able to do whatever the hell he wants. He can do reggae, he can do, uh -huh. you know, he, 
um, you know, uh, he, I don't know. But uh, so I'm in this position and, you know, uh, I only got this one record bad man behind me. Rusty's got, I don't know how many, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so I was intimidated. Um, so I didn't really think too much about the harp. I just, what, what you heard on on um, Mr. Blues, Mr. Blues was extremely un um, rehearsed, like straight from the, <laughs> straight from the seat of the pants playing. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah. We did do overdubs, of course, and and a couple of solos I overdubbed. And you know, when I solo on a tune, especially one that I wrote, I try to think of what the tune needs from the solo mm-hmm. more than what the solo needs from from me. You know, like uh, uh, Big Wheeler had this thing that he used to say, which was, you know, if these guys would just lay back, this music would play itself. Mm-hmm which I think is one of the greatest things anybody ever said that I heard about blues. Um, he's kind of saying that like, the more you take yourself out of it, that like the blues doesn't need any help from me, particularly to be great. <laughs> you know, right, right. like main thing is me just getting out of the way and letting it be great. You know, uh, that's one of the things I learned from tail dragger is, mm-hmm. to, is to, uh, to, he, he was always saying, take your time. And, that, those three words, you know, he said it over and over again to me for about 20 years. Take your time. Mm-hmm. So until, until I finally understood what he was saying, which was to relax and listen to the music and let it play. Mm-hmm. And don't try to force it. Don't try to don't try to you, you have to be relaxed about your your role in the music. Nobody likes a pushy harmonica player. You know, right. right. Uh, you, you and that's a big that's a that's a sort of a key idea to understand playing with what sounds like restraint to the ears of the listener, but in fact, it's the opposite. You're just relaxed and letting the mm-hmm. music do the heavy lifting. Right, 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 right. Yeah, it was sort yeah. of like very much. Like, I remember there was supposedly a quote attributed to John Coltrane who said, uh, "You know, you got to practice, but then when it comes time to play, forget everything you've practiced and just yeah. play." Yeah, it's and, definitely uh, not a conscious process, or a maybe it's a para, a, a meta conscious or something. You know, like a well, higher. I, I think I, I think you know if you've never read the book, the inner game of music, you uh-huh. would you would you would uh, go with that idea that a lot of times our conscious mind gets in the way. Yeah. And, and it's really, you know, just relax and let it flow and let yeah. it go. So yeah. I think that's, I think we're talking about the same thing, albeit yeah. in maybe different ways. Well, you, you can't just, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. You go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you, can, you know, you got to do more than just get up there and blow, you know. Obviously. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can't, but, we can't dismiss the, the, the cognitive aspect or the conscious mind, but, but nonetheless, there's a lot of times when, it's uh, uh it yes if you yeah. overthink it i mean it's like you know I, i've had numerous uh trumpet teachers tell me over the years you know too much analyzation causes paralyzation you know yeah that sort of thing <laughs> so anyway well uh martin you brought up your newest uh, your most recent album mr blues mr blues yeah um did you uh did you use your regular band on that on that recording more or less um, yeah, I, I substituted Kelly Littleton, who's great, great drummer and an old friend of mine, for okay. Dean Haas, who was stricken with the COVID, or so we thought, or something. I mean, COVID just really sure. made the sessions. This those sessions were like really 
took years off my life, man, with the COVID. Oh, and everything. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, there was like, at one point I counted, there was like 15 musicians in the studio at one time. You know, we had an organ and, you know, all kinds of, you know, two guitars, you know, drums, bass, me, Rusty, you know, it's like sure. uh, piano, you know. Uh, but I think it's definitely the best record I've ever made. I think if I continue to go, I think with Dick's help, I can continue to go. And also the guys in the band, I mean, it's it's as far as i'm concerned these are like the guys these are the best guys that i could be using um you know i don't know um everybody in the band has a long resume mm-hmm. um uh the one newcomer is rodrigo montavani on the bass who who's mm-hmm. playing speaks for itself and that's one of the things about music you don't need a long resume you know mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and yeah. rodrigo is definitely somebody who does not need a long resume the guy is a straight up gunfighter mm-hmm. he's really good mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and but they're all a, it's a great it's a great band my usual band is dean haas on drums who uh was jimmy rogers drummer for close to 40 years in town oh, okay yeah and uh and illinois slim who uh plays bass i don't know how much bass slim is going to be playing in the future he's got um problems with his hands but uh, he also plays harp, um, was at one point a, a guitar player in the Eddie Taylor style, great player. Um, Dave Waldman is a piano. And the, the way Dave plays the piano is a particular thing with me. Like uh, I use, I sometimes have a tendency to use these weird harmonies and melodies and stuff like uh-huh. that in younger days off of Bad Man and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave has a really nice way of playing um underneath my singing that i really like he's kind of mm-hmm. like uh he's kind of like he, he's kind of like my otis span was to muddy you know okay uh, dave has a really unique sound very unusual uh sound uh uses dissonance very in, in a lot of interesting ways um uh dave is well known as a hard player but not as a piano guy uh um let's see who else i well there's little frank and billy flynn who are generally on all of my records um mm-hmm. a, uh you know um some tunes I, I don't think i played guitar on mr blues mr blues but i did play it on bad man mm-hmm. um uh but um but yeah i think bad man is um i mean uh mr blues mr blues which is the title track which i wrote um mm-hmm. is definitely um the best work that i've done so far and oh I, wonderful yeah um i'm definitely as into it as I could be mm-hmm. um, uh, as far as, and I have a lot, a lot of that. I have to thank Dick, the producer, who's mm-hmm. ma- absolute master, absolute master. And I am, uh, and if he's listening, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, 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 I watch it. I pay attention to him very carefully because um, if, 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 I mean, he really kind of helped me evolve as an artist in some very fundamental ways and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. if you could i'm trying to figure out how he did that <laughs> sure. because if, I, if you could figure out how to do that with a bunch of different artists you, you could be really you know that could be a real thing which of course it is with dick that's why he's a famous producer you know well i was gonna you know one of the other things i was gonna ask you about your recording on the random chance records label that's and, right. I ch- and I went to their website and I love yep. what they say the, 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 on the title. It says blues, jazz, whatever. Yeah. That's and uh, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> and I looked at some of the other artists that are that are uh, on the label list, a little bit of their music. And it's uh, uh, really um, very kind of adventurous sounds. Yeah. 
yeah within the within the context of those labels of blues and jazz oh yeah rick is a special guy man and he's got a real special thing going on with random chance Um, Uh uh-huh it's a very small very far out and eclectic but real high quality label it's like a miniature delmark (laughs) okay Um, uh um rick is a great guy and and is a big reason why i'm i i you know by why i'm singing and writing my own material i mean uh mm-hmm. he told me he's like hey you know man no more than no you can't you got to write and sing your own songs or you know that's it you, no more of these instrumental records right you know kind of goosed me into doing it uh and has been totally supportive ever since Flew out to Chicago from New York City to come to the sessions for Mr. Blues, Mr. Blues, you know, during the middle of the COVID. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a great, great guy. It's, I wouldn't, I mean, it, to me, it's a great label. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, uh, it's not alligator where you're making, you know, all this bread hand over fist, or at least that's what I'm told. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, but it's, it's, there's, there's a lot of, it's a very cool thing to be part of um and and i'm very comfortable in it and in a lot of ways it's almost like an old time relationship um Mm -hmm. like the old time record label guys and the artists like you know um you know rick has has (laughs) ways of you know showing his appreciation that are you know they're just just as good to me as as music he's very very supportive and that's wonderful um, to hear Oh yeah, it's it's very yeah. rare that you find that good a relationship between a guy like me and the label mm-hmm. boss. You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I well, did... I you know it's one of the things you know I've you know a lot of uh, uh, artists who I've interviewed over the past couple of years are people who are up and coming, you know, and and they're recording on smaller labels, and it's really gratifying to hear the the them talk about the relationship they have with the yeah. labels well especially, you, you know especially like smaller labels and the mission and and the support that they're getting yeah well they're really not i mean the, the a small record label these days is an absolutely great way to lose money i mean that's about it okay and rick congress has been very careful uh to point out that he has different standards of what a successful he, he understands what success in this business means mm-hmm. um and uh uh it's not really a dollar <clears throat> dollar sign um anymore unless you have a great deal of forward capital sure um, but, but um I, you know i think he i think you know random chance was founded by rick congress um walking up to the Anchor shell in indianapolis the, the famous blues mandolin player and putting some bread in his tip jar and, and ma- striking up a conversation, making friends with him. And, you know, he had been seeing, you know, uh, I think he saw West Montgomery in Indianapolis and stuff. You know, I know that he took drums from Kenny, took drum lessons from Kenny Washington at one point, who was mm-hmm. West's mm-hmm. drummer. And he, so he, he, and he sees this guy, Yank Rochelle. Well, he found he found out that Yank Rochelle wasn't getting paid for any of his old, like, recordings yeah. that made it up the chart. And found out that he needed to have a record label in order to get this guy any money. So that's what he did. That's how he founded the label. I'll be uh, darned. To get, to get Yank Rochelle his money. So huh. it it's it wasn't really to be cool or or even to be a documentarian. It was like he started out as 
setting it up as an instrument of justice so to speak you know it sounds to me like it sounds to me like he's got the got the the music bug just as bad as as uh say you or i do he he seems to love it for the music not so much not so much the bottom line and uh, probably puts a lot of heart and soul into it and uh and it is he loves hanging out with musicians yeah he loves musicians. He loves, I call us, I call the musicians guys, the operations guys, you know, uh-huh. they're like Rick and, 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 and that echelon of, of random chance records here in Chicago is uh, that's like strategy and long range, you know, uh, mm-hmm. long range objectives. We're operations, you know, tactical problems. Sure. Know? Sure. Well, you've got to have that. end. I mean, you know, as well as I do, there is enough to worry about just in making the music. I know it's, let, yeah. let alone, let alone setting it, up gigs. Yep. Yep. Getting really studio time. I know. All other. I know. And just, to figure, especially if you're doing something new in the studio and you're trying to get it, like you're trying to capture something new in the studio. It's very difficult. You know, um, I don't want to go into the studio uh, and keep doing um, the same thing over and over yeah. and over again. And yeah. There's certain kind of music that I like and, and that I'm going to make. I love what they used to call boogaloo music. I don't know if you can call that that anymore, but you know, <laughs> I love that that kind of stuff. That I've yeah. done all of my 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 recent records. There's a tune like that, um, you know. Uh, so I, you know, I, 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 you know, it's a it's a it, it's a huge production making a record takes enormous effort um it you know usually knocks me out for a couple of weeks after it's all over with i just oh man <laughs> you know. i i i i've done one one recording with my uh my jazz group is about three years ago and i mean i did it i did everything i mean i picked the charts and uh-huh. took care of the studio time uh-huh. i designed the cover art i mean you know oh, all that kind of stuff yeah and it's like i sometimes wish i was big enough to where i could have someone else do all that and i could just think about music but uh yeah. But I'm well, not, and 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 that's okay, I guess. I get wrapped up in doing all kinds of fun stuff. But yeah, I think that's one of the things that uh, makes uh, Dick stand out as a producer is that he, um, and I mean like um, in the world producer, um, mm-hmm. is that he knows that he and he knows that he's able to. He knows that what the musicians need to do in order to produce their best is uh, not literally have a single other thing to worry about, yeah. except they're at they're performing that they're absolute giving you the best they've got um and um and, and in order if you wanted to do that then you got you got to hold them in your hand like a little like a bird <laughs> you yeah know, you gotta like take care of them like be super gentle with them and make it so that they have nothing to worry about and you'll see what happens or at least that's what he did with me and it and it yeah. worked it worked yeah. like man i'll tell you <laughs> uh yeah. so as long as uh, as long as we're working together, which we are for the uh, as far as I'm concerned, till the bitter end, um, you'll be hearing these types of records mm-hmm. um, coming from me, and I hope that I can improve the singing. That's my major objective. I um, uh-huh. I'm I, there's a few things that I'm interested in doing with the harp instrumentally, um, with the chromatic. There's this big thing I've been talking my my face off about for years now that I better put up or shut up this little jazz thing that I got to figure out uh, instrumental wise and stuff, but more these days, I'm more worrying about like the overall tune, like what kind of tune is it? And uh, how can I make it sound even 
even better, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and also uh, honest subject material uh, for the tune, because I don't, the lyrics of my songs mean something, um, which is to say some, sometimes they're imaginary. Sometimes I'm imagining singing about some experience, you know, that isn't mine, but somebody else had, but is close to mine, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh, but I mean, that's how everybody writes a song. And, and uh, I usually start with, uh, I'm usually inspired of a melody by the phrase, the language that somebody says, mm -hmm. like, um, uh, you know, there's a natural, there's like a, a, a there's a, uh, there's a natural sort of rhythm to uh, certain phrases. Yeah, sure. You ain't, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, which comes from, I understand John Brim's, you ain't nothing but a rattlesnake come crawling around my door. There's like a, there's a cadence to it. And if mm -hmm. somebody says something, you know, uh, and I remember, you know, it just makes me think of a melody. I remember that's what happened with uh, Younger Days when I wrote Younger Days and also mm -hmm. Mr. Blues, Mr. Blues, Mr. Blues um, was just a song that I wanted to write to explain to people that blues, that Mr. Blues is not your friend. Right, <laughs> like, right. He doesn't like you. You well, know, he doesn't like anybody. So, so another, for you, when you write a new song, you start you start with a catchphrase or or a lyric so or something like that. Frequently, yes. It's well, it's a, it's yeah. like a it's like a melody that accompanies a, a phrase of of language. Sure, sure. Well, I, I I think I understand that because, you know, I mean, uh, certain spoken phrases have a particular rhythm or melody yeah. to them. Musicality. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, you know, and it's funny, I, you know, the number of singer songwriters I've talked to, uh, you know, um, one, uh, actually, she's a, a jazz trombonist and vocalist, but she talked about how she liked, uh, you know, just particular catchphrases or quotes, you know, things like that. Yeah. I interviewed I interviewed Nick Moss, oh, probably two, three, four months ago. And oh, yeah. he told me he got a lot of his inspiration from uh, Marquis out in front of Baptist churches. Oh. Uh, like his, uh, he had a, he has a, a an album and a, 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 the high cost of low living. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he would see that and he thought, oh, that's a great <laughs> song title. Yeah, and he perfect. would, and then that would all come to him. And so, so <laughs> yeah. that idea of those, uh, you know, uh, having a, you know, a phrase or something come to your head and then the melodic yeah. line that, that comes along with it. That's, uh, I think that's a, a very natural kind of connection. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it works. It pretty much never fails. There's other ways that I like different tunes, sometimes like a special tune, like Batman, or say it one more time. That's off of Mr. Blues, Mr. Blues. I wrote that just listening. To, I, I was waiting. I, I was, I knew that Dick was going to ask me for another tune and I had, didn't have any more, uh -huh. and, uh, which is weird. I must've thrown out a whole bunch of tunes because usually I've got way more than I need, you know? And, sure. Uh, but I went to the studio. I'm standing there in the, at the, in my kitchen and I'm listening to this Bo Diddley tune. And I realized that I can put the, I can put the vocals while I'm listening to it, I'm, I'm listening and I'm thinking, oh, I can put this, the, the vocals in the opposite place to where Bo put his and it's going to sound like the tune sound different. Mm -hmm. So I changed the I changed the lyrics and basically just completely ripped off the tune. 
the, the melody and the changes and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no harp on the original, and uh-huh. then completely ch- and then changed the lyrics. There's another thing I'll do where I'll listen to a tune and try to adapt it, just for the the challenge of doing that. Like the one I'm listening to now, this is really gonna freak them out. Is um that um is there's a rap group called Cypress Hill that's mm-hmm. that's from it's a neighborhood Cypress Hill is a neighborhood in, in uh, Brooklyn, but they're, uh, they're I think they're from Los Angeles or something, and um they I, I think it'd be really cool because they sample a whole lot of like soul music and old r&b and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and it'd be really cool to um cover um a rap rap group's tune and make it sound like a really old you know which i think you could do with this one tune that they've got and uh i just think that would be a really cool thing to do you know well i think that sounds like a great idea you know there's 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 other kinds of groups out there that sort of do that like there's uh I can't re- uh, remember the name of them right now, but they're a bluegrass group. Uh-huh. And what they do, they take like hard rock tunes, but play them like they're bluegrass. <laughs> right, right. And it's I'll just really, you, really a gas to listen to. And then, and then there's like uh, uh postmodern jukebox. They'll take oh, yeah. uh, current pop tunes, but right. make them sound like, you know, thirties, forties right. uh, <laughs> swing tunes. Right. So right. maybe you're onto something with taking a rap <laughs> tune. <laughs> and doing it as a doing it as a blues, uh, yeah, I think, I think they've got some definite possibilities. <laughs> that sounds like it's, a lot of fun. Yeah, and we'll see if I can do it, man. I hope so. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, I'm curious. You know, we've talked about your your uh, your work, and and I assume you're writing new music uh, on a regular basis, anyway. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. I mean, there is no off switch on genius. We all know yeah. that, right? So you're always doing it. But what I am curious about now that Mr. Blues, Mr. Blues is out, uh-huh. do you have any new recording projects planned or in the works? Well, um, Dick told me to, to like, you know, pump the brakes a little bit on. Uh, okay. <laughs> because I was really, I was really, I mean, almost as soon as we got done doing that, Mr. Blues, Mr. Blues, I was ready to go back in the studio. I understand. But, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I just want to get as much out of this band as I can in the time that I have. And also mm-hmm. Dick, you know, I mean, the, the guys in my band are not young guys. You know? Sure, sure. I mean, the, plenty of them are over 60. Plenty of them are over, we're putting around 60 or 65, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, a, lot of, a couple of them are older than that. And, and uh, Dick is 70 years old, you know. So yeah. I want to, you know, and this band is kind of a very finely tuned thing. Everybody listens to each other carefully. Everybody plays, you know, puts... 100% everything they got into it it's you know I'm really happy with what everybody's done on all these these records and I'd like to do it as much as possible having said that I don't want to like dilute the market on Martin <laughs> or yeah. um, or what whatever but um, I just think that I whenever we get done with one of these records I always feel like the next one's going to be better than the last one and I just mm-hmm. want to get started on it you know sure uh, and I you know Willie Buck told me he listens to bad man and mr blues mr blues every day mm-hmm. <laughs> you know i mean uh and that that i that to me that's a, re, a rare a very unique and, and, and rare gift that i get to um enjoy you know is that i i've known willie for as long as i have and tail dragger stuff and i can play my music for him and you know play it for them with a sense of accomplishment you know pride and so on and so forth um 
And I, I, you know, as I get older, you know, the more of this story, the more of these blue stories I see and hear about and, Mm -hmm. you know, live in, you know, sure. Uh, So, you know, um, uh, I mean, I would be realistically, I'll probably be headed in the direction of another record in, inside another year. I mean, okay. one way by hook or by crook. I don't know. <laughs> sure. But I certainly, I have an idea of what I'm going to do. Well, I can understand, you know, uh, the label's position that, you know, they yeah. don't want to saturate the market right. with your material because then people could become complacent toward it. And right. maybe, right. Uh, you know, to, to kind of met it out a little bit, uh, in, yeah. in drips rather than a flood is maybe right. good from a marketing standpoint, yeah. but, yeah. but uh, if you've got stuff ready to go to put in the can, I mean, that's, that's great. Cause you're uh, you know, then you'll be able to hit the ground running when the time. Yeah. Is. Well, I mean, I can't, the thing about red Congress and random chance is that I, I can't, I, it hasn't been my, I've never had the experience of contacting Rick and saying, Hey, I've got something I want to do. And him yeah. saying, no. Yeah. Yeah. He's never yeah. said no. Or, yeah. You know, I don't have the money or whatever, or, you know, take a look, break away. He's never said that. Whenever I've sure. come to him and said, hey, man, it's now I'm ready. He said, okay, go ahead and book the studio. All right. Well, you that's know. good. Well, we'll look forward to uh, to whatever uh, comes next because, uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed uh, Bad Man and Mr. Blues, Mr. Blues. I've been listening, uh, you know, a lot to it the past week just to get ready uh-huh. for today. So, uh-huh. Uh, really some some great stuff you know i i have got to ask you i ask this of a, a lot of artists most every artist i i actually if you are covering a well-known blues song that uh, has a long-standing history and i and when i say when you cover not necessarily on a recording but maybe you do a you cover somebody else's tune in a live performance or something do you uh, do you feel an obligation to perform that song in a similar manner to the artist who originally performed it or recorded it or do you feel an obligation to make it your own by doing uh, it in a unique and different way well i would say uh I, I, I would want to make it my own, but I, there's, you can depart for, you can depart from, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I would, I'm, slavish imitation is not my thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I have my own sound and my own thing to say. Um, uh, I don't do a great deal of covers. Okay. I do, when I do like gigs and stuff, I do almost, I do all, almost all original. Okay. Um, I have a big like showstopper number that I do, which is Slim Harpo Scratch My Back. And I have a mm-hmm. couple other covers that I do. Uh, and when I play guitar, I do Backdoor Man and stuff like that. But uh, usually I prefer to sing my, my own material. I find it easier to sing my mm-hmm. own material mm-hmm. and um, more natural. And uh, but as far as I think, I, as far as the, the uh, animus, the question, um, Somewhere between slavish imitation and like, you know, completely free jazz. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> you know, which, <laughs> which is, I don't know. Yeah. Like, like, uh, you know, what's his name? The guy who put all the radios on top of the ladders and turned them on. Yes. Um, John, uh, John Cage. Yes. Uh, between, between like slavish duplication and, and, and that, and in complete freedom, there's some in some in intermediate middle ground, I had this, I was playing this, I played this festival down in Mississippi a few years ago 
called the, uh, the, the Mississippi Saxophone Festival. It was a harmonica festival. Mm-hmm. And on the, the last day of the, the, the festival was Friday and Saturday. And Mike Gick had opened the, the festival on Friday night. And all the guys were there. You know, Paul, Paul Osher was there. Kim Wilson and, um, you know, every, all these fans, all, Billy Boy Arnold. And, you know, so uh, I, I, I started the festival and then just kind of hung around for the rest of the weekend. Uh, heard the other guys play. And then on Sunday... I somebody told me to go see this band at this jazz club. Mm-hmm. So like I don't know, folk, uh, hippie club, whatever. I, so I go down there, and I, I'm told that the that the uh, leader of the band is this young woman who plays um, cello, viola, violin, and she's an absolute monster with glow in the dark chops. You can see it right away; it's obvious as soon as they walk into the club. She's playing mm-hmm. all this crazy. You know how a person can play a lot of crazy stuff. But if they have like real authority and they're and they're and they're and they have this kind of like musical self-confidence that comes from a certain kind of musical mastery of the instrument, she yes. had that. Okay. That's the kind of that's the kind of sound. Um, you know, and uh, but then they would the band would, would bust out and play these these like, you know, like Black River Rag and stuff, Black Mountain Rag and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I can't mm-hmm. remember the name of the band. But so I'm outside the club. Um, on their set break, having a cigarette, and and I see her standing out there, so I go over to her and tell her how amazed I am at how well she, you know, how great she sounds. She's she's got degrees. She has a degree from um, from Harvard as an undergraduate, majoring in music, and then she has a graduate degree from one of the music schools. I can't remember which one it is, but it's one okay. of the, you know, one of the like very prestigious music schools. So this chick's got like it all, man. So. She turns to me and goes, oh, yeah, you're you're one of those guys, one of those harmonica players, right? That was on the festival. And I say, yeah. And she, and I said, I'm from Chicago. I would, uh, you know, she said, yeah, you're one of the traditional players, right? It must be nice. And I said, what, <laughs> what do you mean? And she goes, well, you know, if you're a traditional guy, you know that, like, your heroes are always going to cast their shadow on you, right? I mean... Isn't that what's being a, and that was like one of the most astute observations I'd heard. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, she kind of like grabbed me by the sword knot on that one. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And uh, and I said, well, you know, I, I I mean, I guess you could look at it that way. I kind of regard the the traditional style as a certain set of like a certain way of doing things. Like, um, you know, you can use a milling machine to make a you know a, a wheel. But you can also make it like with your hands and a, you know, and all that kind of. I mean, there's different ways to do the same thing, you know. And there's a blues way of doing it, um, and it's about learning the blues way of doing it. Uh, I don't know that we ever resolved that. I mean, I can't remember what her name was, but man, was she good. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> I, I kind of understand where you're coming from. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a very good friend of mine. Uh, by the name of Frank Green, and Frank is a very active uh, lead trumpet player in New York City. And uh, he plays in a number of different uh, big bands, as well as he does pit work on Broadway and so on. So we were uh, talking and I asked him, I said, of all the big bands that you've played with, and he's, he's, you know, he's played with a lot of them. I said, which one has the most challenging book? And he said, he said, uh, and this was just right after he was named the new lead player for the Count Basie band. Mm-hmm. And he said, definitely the Basie book, because mm-hmm. not because it's harder to play, but it's a harder legacy to live up to. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. because you think about people that have been in that chair over the yeah. years yeah. and that they they have developed a certain way of interpreting oh yeah uh, yeah base, basic music right yeah and bass, every trumpet player in basie's band was famous in his own for doing his own thing you bingo know? and so he that's what he said you know he basically yeah. said you've got that you know you've got that legacy and yeah. i suppose that's maybe similar what this young lady was kind of yeah. kind of relaying to you i mean you're yeah. lucky in a way because you know you're following <laughs> your fault you're you know you're standing on the shoulders of others greatness and following right. along right. and uh, but at the same time you've got that millstone that burden of of uh, uh of that legacy also to live oh. with so oh. yeah yeah. Well, anyway, Martin, speaking of, of legacies, I have I just have a couple more questions for you. But right. if, uh, if you could perform with any artist you have never performed with, uh -huh. living or dead, who would that artist be and why? Oh, wow. Um, play with? Um... No, if, yeah, you have never played with. Yeah, but never you, played with. But well, who, would it, guess... who would it be? Uh, the answer to that question would probably have to be Muddy Waters, okay. um, because, uh, most of all, because I would be absolutely, um, uh, if I got a chance to play with him, I would be, um, I would be absolutely desperate to know what he thought, what he had to say about my, <laughs> my playing. Sure you uh, would. Everybody, every great heart player that, from Chicago there ever was played with him, uh, I mean, he's kind of in some ways the essential, mm -hmm. you know, Chicago blues. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're a harmonica, you know, for harmonica, I mean, I might say, I, and also if I got to play with Muddy, I'm, I'm assuming, okay, I'll say this. How about Muddy with like his first great band with Muddy? And I could, I could just take over for little Walter. Okay. <laughs> Preposterous, by the way, but uh, just for my, you know, since I'm, you know, <laughs> making all the rules here. Yeah. Muddy's first band with Jimmy Rogers, notice fan and, uh, okay because then i could then i could play with all those guys and i could see if i was really was doing it right or if i'm just kidding myself okay all <laughs> right yeah you'd really you'd really find out if you got the gold standard of excellence there yeah uh because yeah. that that would definitely be yeah well that's okay yeah. i mean it is kind of a fantasy question so yeah i mean I've, different, I've had people ask me if i could go back in time to one gig you know one club at one year where would it be or if i could yeah. have dinner I have, my answer, if, if I could have dinner with one musician, I think the answer would be uh, would be Billy Holiday. Oh um, yeah, yeah. I don't know though. I'm not sure. Um, yeah. It's a, a lot of those are hard questions. You know? Yeah. Well, you know, but, yeah. I think it's, it's just speculative, and it's it's right. a kind of thing that no one's no one's uh, <laughs> uh, married to. It's just always kind of interesting yeah. to know what you're. <laughs> which you're, you're feeling and thinking. Well, yeah. Martin, it's been great. Uh, we talking with you, we've been going for well over an hour here, but is, uh, uh, I kind of want to wind things up by making sure. sure we haven't missed anything. Is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Not really. I, um, I think we pretty much covered a lot of interesting stuff, you know, um, um, you know, uh, I just, you know, I, I, uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to hear um, the, the the latest record, and and I hope they like it enough that they're interested in hearing the next one. You know. Well, I would encourage my audience to check out uh, both Bad Man and Mister Blues. Mister Blues, I think there's a lot of 
excellent, excellent music on on uh, those recordings, and that ought to make them good and thirsty for the next one when it comes out. <laughs> right on, man. Yes. Well, Martin, I want to thank you for taking time uh, to talk with me today. Thank you, Craig. And you bet. And I want to wish you all the best with Thanks, what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Thanks, man. You bet. My discovery composer of the week is Florence Price, born Little Rock, Arkansas, in 1887, she died in Chicago in 1953. Price was the first African-American woman to win widespread recognition as a symphonic composer, rising to prominence with William Grant Still and William Dawson in the 1930s. After early training with her mother, she studied composition at the New England Conservatory in Boston with Wallace Goodrich and Frederick Shepard Converse. That was from 1903 to 1906. And privately with George Whitefield Chadwick. She gained an artist diploma in organ and a piano teacher's diploma. She returned to the South to teach at the cotton plant Arkadelphia Academy from 1906 to 1907 and Shorter College from 1907 to 1910 in Little Rock, then headed the music department of Clark College in Atlanta until 1912 when she returned to Little Rock to marry. In 1927, presumably to escape the increasing racial oppression in the South, the Price family moved to Chicago. There, she began a period of compositional creativity and study at the American Conservatory and with Carl Bush, Wesley LaViolette, and Arthur Olaf Anderson at the Chicago Musical College. In the 1920s, she began to win awards for her compositions, and in 1932, she achieved national recognition when she won first prize in the Wanamaker competition for her Symphony in E minor. With the symphony's premiere in 1933 by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra under Stock, Price became the first African-American woman to have an orchestral work performed by a major American orchestra. Her music was taken up by other orchestras, and she won further recognition after Marian Anderson's performance of her arrangement of the spiritual, My Soul's Been Anchored in De Lord, and Songs to the Dark Virgin. The latter, a setting of text by Langston Hughes, is one of her most powerful art songs and was hailed by the Chicago Daily News as one of the greatest immediate successes ever won by an American song. She remained active as a composer and teacher until her death. Price played the theater organ for silent films, wrote popular music for commercial purposes, and orchestrated arrangements for soloists and choirs who performed with the WGN Radio Orchestra in Chicago. She is best known for her songs, 
Her art songs and arrangements of spirituals were sung by many of the most renowned singers of the day, including Marian Anderson, Blanche Thebaum, Etta Moten, and Leontine Price. Although her music was widely performed, her output, comprising over 300 compositions, remains unpublished, apart from a handful of songs and piano pieces. In her large-scale works, Price's musical language is often conservative, in keeping with the romantic nationalist style of the 1920s and 19, to the 1940s, but it also reflects the influence of her cultural heritage and the ideals of the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s and 30s. She incorporated spirituals and characteristic dance music within classical forms and at times deviated from traditional structures in deference to influences which are implicitly African-American. For example, call-and-response techniques and juba dance rhythms. To her art songs and piano music, she brought a thorough knowledge of instrumental and vocal writing, colorful harmonies, and exotic modulations. The All Music Guide lists 10 recordings of Price's chamber music, two recordings of her choral music, three recordings of her concerti, 51 recordings of her keyboard works, four recordings of her symphonies, eight recordings of her other orchestral works, 12 recordings of works for solo voice with accompaniment, and two recordings of what the All Music Guide refers to as miscellaneous compositions. In my show notes is a link to a YouTube video of a performance of Florence Price's Violin Concerto No. 2, performed by the Urban Playground Chamber Orchestra, conducted by Thomas Cunningham with Kelly Hall Tompkins as violin soloist. And that's a wrap on episode number 134. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Coming up next week will be my interview with New York City-based jazz bassist Knox Barber. Other upcoming interviews include Minneapolis-based funk, soul, pop, and rock singer Mae Simpson, Andrew Duncanson of the Chicago blues band The Dig Three, and New York City-based jazz pianist John Thomas. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.